Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Within the Mist, a hidden place where we walk into the dark and clouded unknown. I am your trident-wielding host, Gary, here to entertain and inform you about the likes of cryptids, ghosts, and other mysteries with my lovely mermaid wife and co-host, Goldie Ann. Hello, Goldie Ann. Hey, Carrie. How are you today? I'm a mermaid, so I'm honestly I'm very happy. Well, you'd be happier in the ocean, wouldn't you? Yes, much. Okay, I think it's time to schedule another scuba trip very soon. <laughs> yes, very much. Well, I was, before the show, I decided to check and see how we were doing on the other podcast providers. And Good Pods recently came out with their top listener charts again. Did you know we're ranked number 28 in indie history, number 24 in science, and number 7 in indie science? Wow, that's pretty cool. I know. It actually looks like we're smart with the way that they're listening to us. (laughs) That's true. Very true. Yes. Uh, There's no paranormal section, so I don't know where we would be at in that category, but this is where we are for now. Uh, Goldie Ann. Yes. I see you have some new toys to play with. <laughs> I do, I do. So what is it that you just recently got? I've acquired a bit of ghost hunting equipment. And I've been taking some paranormal classes so I can understand it more. Because, of course, it's something I love, but I never thought it was something I could actually do. Mm. I researched it, and it is, in fact, something I can do. And I've started studying now. So now you're becoming a Ghostbuster? Sure, let's go with that. I just figure it will help out the podcast when we go do certain things. If I know a little bit more about that side, since you're not interested in that side. Oh no, I'm very interested. I just don't have as much knowledge in it as you do. (laughs) And I'm fixing to get a whole lot more. In fact, you're going to get some on-hands practice with it because we're scheduled at the end of August to actually visit the Gilchrist Jail, which is haunted, and we will be spending the night. So yeah, we've acquired some really cool and nice friends, and they invited us to go with them to one of them. So Phelan Paranormal has invited us to go with them to Gilchrist Jail. And we're basically going to spend the night in the haunted house slash prison. Yep. See if we can find some stuff. See if I can make you a believer. Well, I'm bringing every camera and every piece of recording equipment I have, so hopefully we record something. Well, I have a surprise for you. Okay. (laughs) I bought you a new camera. Oh, you did? I did. And what's special about this camera? It's a night vision ghost hunting Oh, is it one of those green light type cameras? Yep. Well, then uh, I guess then we'll have to post everything that we do for that night on our YouTube video channel. So very good reason for you guys to check that out. Yes, absolutely. Now we're come to the part of our show, which is the humor section. And (laughs) I have a concern, Goldie Ann. I have this nagging feeling that all of our listeners and all of our fans are only listening to the show for this part, and they may be turning off after the joke of the week. Why, why, why would you think this? Well, it's kind of one of, part of my favorite part of the show. Uh-huh. Why so, do you think people would turn it off, though? Well, because they get the best part of the show. You know, everything else might not be quite as climactic. You think that's what it is? Okay. So, I'm going to present this first before our our humor section of the show. 
please continue listening to the rest of the show for entertaining and informative episode. <laughs> With that in mind, for our humor of the week, Goldie Ann, do you know what is the latest fad amongst teenage mermaids in the city of Atlantis? I'm kind of afraid to ask. Go ahead and ask. Uh, what's the latest fad? Taking shelfies with their shell phones. Jesus Christ. Okay, how many listeners just turned this off? None. They're done. They're done with you. Done. I'm sure that they're telling all their friends to come and listen. I'm sure. As a disclaimer, today's episode contains stories about ancient wars and the destruction of entire civilizations. We are storytellers who have gathered information about some of our favorite mysteries to bring to you. We don't attempt to scare our listeners on purpose. Well, maybe just a little. Listener discretion is always advised. And with that, more than 2,300 years ago, the first mention of a continent was presented to the public. It was of a land of technological advances and a utopia for its people. It became known as Atlantis. Ah, this should be good. However, they became greedy, petty, and morally bankrupt. Okay, never mind. <laughs> the more you know, right? <laughs> the gods became angry because the people had lost their way and turned to immoral pursuits. As punishment, the gods sent, quote, one terrible night of fire and earthquakes that caused Atlantis to sink into the sea. Since then, rumors of every type abound regarding the city and the continent of Atlantis. Was it a technologically advanced as we believed? Where did it exist? And more importantly, did it even exist at all? Join us today as we take a walk within the mist and explore the lost continent of Atlantis. Yay! Woo! Oh, sorry. It's fanfare. Well, I for like those fanfare. For those couple of people who didn't turn it off. Well, those are the ones that are going to learn everything that I know about Atlantis, and then some. What do you know about Atlantis? Um, it was a continent sunk into the ground, and it's got like tritons and gold, and I'm thinking the Little Mermaid, aren't I? Little Mermaid does present one aspect of Legends of Atlantis that it's. Inhabited by I've mermaids. I've also seen Aquaman. Aquaman is another one that plays upon the story of Atlantis. Mm-hmm. They've got a really hot god down there. Excuse me? What? I I, I, I must have misheard you or yeah, something like that. I don't like know that. what you heard. Okay. You know, I, I do edit the podcast, so I'll just play that part back and clean it up, and then I'll be able to understand what you said, right? Sure. Then you'll Momoa no more. <sighs> And you criticize my dad jokes. <laughs> and you're going to throw puns like that? Sorry, I had to. Uh, all right. I'm going to switch to the show because I think that would get that off of my mind. <laughs> well, let's begin with Chapter 1, Plato the Philosopher. Plato, who lived from 428 to 347 BCE, was a Greek philosopher born in Athens during the classical period of ancient Greece. He is most known for founding the Platonist school of thought and the academy, 
which I don't know if you know this, Goldian, but was the very first institution of higher learning in the Western world. So he created college, and that's why you have Greek Week, toga parties, uh, fraternities. Student Yes, all still focusing on the Greek aspect from so long ago. Awesome. So he was a pretty big name during his time. In fact, he is widely considered a pivotal figure in the history of ancient Greece and Western philosophy. Along with his teacher Socrates and his most famous student Aristotle, his work has often been referred to as the foundation of Western religion and spirituality. Unlike the work of nearly all of his contemporaries, Plato's entire body of work is believed to have survived intact for over 2,400 years. That means everything that he has ever written, you can still read today. And his work has been consistently read and studied throughout the 2,400 years. So can you imagine books that are that popular that people would still be reading them after 24 centuries? That's awesome. So, the bottom line is that he is incredibly respected, even if he spends his time walking around in a toga. Hey, don't criticize the man's comfort level. I should. um, (laughs) This coming from the woman who uh, comes out in a bathrobe? Yeah. When Plato tells you something, you should listen. And when he writes about something, you can believe in it. So when he writes about another world, It is something that you can take seriously. Right. And this is why it is so surprising when he described a land so advanced when compared to the rest of the world, and it was even more shocking when it was destroyed, leaving nothing behind. The original story of the lost island of Atlantis comes to us from two Socratic speeches called Timaeus and Critias, which Plato wrote about 360 BCE. Wow. I agree this definitely has a wow factor because it always fascinates me that I can go online, I can order his translated book that he wrote 2,400 years ago and read it, his words today. So it's pretty cool that this book still exists. Right. He wrote these uh, to be a festival speech prepared to be told on the day of Panathenea, a celebration in honor of the goddess Athena, which Athens was named after. The plot of the story is that it describes a meeting of various men who had met the previous day to hear Socrates, Plato's teacher, describe the ideal government. Socrates asked three men to meet him and then tell him how ancient Athens interacted with other countries. The first to report was named Critias, who told how his grandfather had met with the Athenian poet and lawgiver Solon known as one of the seven sages. Solon had been to Egypt, where priests had compared Egypt and Athens, and they talked about the gods and legends of both lands. Included in these stories from Egypt was the Egyptian story about Atlantis. Solon had been to Egypt, where priests had stories about Atlantis from 9,000 years earlier. So if you take back the 2,000 years back to the time of Socrates and Plato and then add another 9,000 years to that, that means the Egyptians knew about Athens from 11,000 years ago. So a really, really, really long time ago. So 11,000 years B.C.? 11,000 years from today. Okay. Because if we t- we're in the year 2000, right. right? 
And if we go back 2,000 years or actually go back 2,300 years, well, actually 2,500 years, we'd be at the time of Socrates. So if we go back another 9,000 years, Dang. so 9,000 plus 2,500, yeah, 11 and a half thousand years ago was the time of Atlantis. Wow. The story went that there was a mighty power based on a large island in the Atlantic Ocean. The empire was called Atlantis, and it ruled over several other islands and part of the continents of both Africa and Europe. So this was a widespread power base or kingdom known as Atlantis, centralized on an island where the main city was. Right. The creation of Atlantis was actually explained in Greek myths. According to the myth, the ancient gods of old divided the land so that each deity could have their own place, their own base of operations. Poseidon, the god of the ocean, appropriately and to his liking, was bequeathed the entire continent of Atlantis. So the city of Atlantis was given to Poseidon, and that is where his people were supposed to exist. The island was larger than ancient Libya and Asia Minor combined, and it extended 345 miles across and was made of concentric rings alternating between land and water until it centered on one island where the capital city of Atlantis resided. So imagine a center island, that's where the main city was, and it's surrounded by rings alternating between water and land, and that would be the entire continent of Atlantis. That is huge, and that's gone. It's in the, it's just sunk. And that's what we'll explain during our story. Okay. But going back to the beginnings of Atlantis, Poseidon fell in love with a mortal woman named Cleito, which seems to be a common trend amongst the uh, ancient Greek gods. They fell in love with mortals a lot and had children. And in this case, Poseidon and Cleito had five pairs of male twins. That means ten boys. Gross. Why is that gross? Too many boys. <laughs> Could you imagine? I I had two daughters, so I can't imagine having ten boys. Yeah, they're a little different. And uh, being twins, I'm sure, was double the uh, yes, double the havoc and destruction. Now, the eldest of these was Atlas, and he was made the rightful king of the entire island. The ocean, called the Atlantic Ocean, was in his honor, and he was given the mountains of his birth and the surrounding area as his kingdom. So right from the beginning, we can see that the Atlantic Ocean was named after Atlantis, and Atlantis was named after Atlas, son of Poseidon. Awesome. So a little bit of... strong guy. I'm sorry? He's the strong guy. Well, no. Uh, there are two atlases, and I had to double-check this because this atlas is the son of Poseidon. There's another atlas who was a titan. Titans existed before the gods of Greek, and there was a war between the, the Greek gods and the titans, and Atlas was on the side of the titans, and when they were defeated, Atlas's punishment was that he had to carry the sky on his shoulders. Uh-huh. This Atlas was a demigod and very strong, very powerful, and but he was more known for his intellect. Okay. That was a rabbit hole. It truly was because when everyone does say Atlas, you automatically think of the guy holding the planet on his shoulders. Right. 
This one's a little different. Atlas was a wise leader and his kingdom flourished under the tutelage of Poseidon, who passed on a lot of his knowledge to Atlas to make the continent and the island flourish. The soil was rich, the engineers were technically accomplished, and the architecture was extravagant with baths, harbor installations, and barracks. Atlas was known for its kings and civil administration, but it was also known as having its own organized military. Their prosperity caused them to eventually become arrogant as they believed it was their divine right to guide the other inferior lands around them and rule them if need be. So since they thought they were smarter than everybody, they thought they should rule everybody. Of course. Isn't that what they always do? It's what they do nowadays. Uh, they say that if you don't learn from your history, you're doomed to repeat it. So That's why we repeat it. Constantly. Well, then I guess we need to prove Atlantis exists so that we don't copy their mistakes. Yeah. But in any case, unfortunately, a war took place between those outside the Pillars of Hercules, which is a collection of two mountain points right there at the Strait of Gibraltar, so just on the western edge of the Mediterranean Ocean. So you had those outside the Pillars of Hercules, Atlantis and its armies, and then you had the rest of Europe and northern Africa. So kind of your first real world war. The Atlanteans were so successful that they conquered as far as Egypt and the European continent as far as Italy. So they conquered over through Portugal, Spain, Egypt, Libya. All of those fell, fell before the Atlantean army. Then they subjected those people to slavery. And as their reach continued eastward towards the rest of northern Africa and Europe, the Athens realized that they had to take action. When Atlas attacked, the Athenians led an alliance of resistors against Atlantis. So now you have the war between Athens and Atlantis. After battle after battle, the alliance soon disintegrated, and Athens prevailed alone against Atlantis. Athens eventually triumphed over the overreaching invading Atlantean forces who had stretched themselves too thin. They defeated the enemy, preventing the free from being enslaved, and then freed those that had been enslaved. They defeated Atlantis due to the arrogant empire's blind greed overreaching their forces across Europe. What happened next is where the mystery comes to play, as after the battle, Plato wrote that, quote, Afterwards, there occurred violent earthquakes and floods, and then in a single day and night of misfortune, all your warlike men in a body sank into the earth, and the island of Atlantis in like manner disappeared in the depths of the sea. Wow. So some reason, somehow, at the end of this war, or possibly causing the end of the war, Atlantis was destroyed and sank into the ocean. Here's some of the questions that you can ask yourself then. Okay. Was Atlantis punished by Poseidon for their failure or for their arrogance? Did Atlantis utilize technology that they didn't understand and cause their self-destruction? Or was it a coincidence that a natural disaster crippled their military, causing them to lose the war with Athens and their homes? Those are good questions, but questions we're never going to know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Okay. 
and I want you to keep those in, in mind as I explain. Okay. Because most scholars consider the Atlantis story a parable, basically a moral story of two cities which compete and how a small but just city, Athens, triumphs over a mighty, evil aggressor, Atlantis. That might does not always mean right. So it was meant to be an ethics lesson for the people of Athens that because they were just and that they were good it was the reason why they defeated uh, Atlantis. These same scholars do not believe Plato's work to be historical but more of a philosophical one and that Atlantis didn't exist. But what if this is more than just a moral tale but actually has historical basis that Plato used to write about Atlantis. Maybe Plato didn't create Atlantis at all. What if there were other ancient documents about Atlantis, not written by philosophers, but by actual historians? Okay. With that, we have Chapter 2, Ancient Historians. Hmm. I'm going to apologize. Hopefully I don't misspell or mispronounce these names. But first... Let's talk about Hellenicus of Lesbos, who was a genealogist who wrote a work entitled Atlantis. Unfortunately, only a few fragments survive to this day, but it is one of the most interesting details about the document is that it was written almost a hundred years before Plato. Ah, oh, way. And si since it was during the same time as Plato, he might have been possibly familiar with the book. Did he read this work of Hellenicus, and that's where he discovered the story about Atlantis? Hellenicus works, this seems to be a genealogy one, so he wrote about family trees. And in the book Atlantis, he was writing about the daughters of Atlas, suggesting that not only did Atlas exist, but he did rule a kingdom. John V. Luce who studied the works of Plato, noted that when Plato writes about the genealogy of Atlantis' kings, he changes his style and in fact writes in the same style as Hellenicus, suggesting that he utilized the historian's own words in the Critias. He's a fraud? Not a fraud. He just copied someone else's work to support his philosophy class. But you're not allowed to do that. In, okay, if you school. create your own university and it's the first of its kind, I'm pretty sure you're going to make up your own rules about what is plagiarism and what's not. <laughs> True story. Now, the bottom line is is that he wasn't plagiarizing it and saying that he historically studied the history of Atlantis. What Plato did is use Atlantis to show how a big evil country will not defeat a good small country. Ah, right. Okay. So it's not exactly plagiarism. But Hellenicus' work does show that maybe all those details were not out of Plato's own imagination. Another scholar, Rodney Castleton, even suggested that Plato may have borrowed his title of Atlantis from Hellenicus. Now Hellenicus may have based his own work on even earlier documents about the ancient continent during his travels to Egypt. So Hellenicus' work may have been copied from ancient Egyptian documents. Hmm, okay. And not only does Hellenicus write about the same atlas mentioned by Plato, but he continues the history of the rest of the family's bloodline to include seven daughters. And that bloodline continued in until it migrated into the Athenian world. 
So there are Athenians who have the bloodline of Atlas, who was the king of Atlantis. Wow, okay. This is, this is getting deep. And this wasn't written as a story. Hellenicus was basically writing about the family tree in right. factual details. And as the historical document supports what became of this family, it does support that they must have come from some country, and that country was possibly the island continent of Atlantis. Hellenicus does differ from Plato's version of Atlantis in one crucial detail. Now, when Plato wrote about Atlantis, he painted the empire as the villain and attempting to take over the world. You know, the mad scientist, wahaha, and taking over the taking over the world. Right. Whereas, and it was the Athenians who defeated them. And that's Plato's version. Right. Now, in Hellenicus's version, he writes that Atlantis was the islands of the blessed, a Greek version of paradise, or the lost Garden of Eden. This does make sense, as Plato was using the continent to make a philosophical point and not teaching history. They always say to the victor goes the power to write the history books. Right. And since Atlantis wasn't there to defend themselves, we have to depend on Plato's work to determine what kind of country Atlantis was. So was it a peaceful utopia or was it a warmongering country that Athens defeated? I've always heard it was a peaceful utopia. And in fact, the idea of the utopian continent doesn't end there. Aristotle, a philosopher and math genius and student of Plato, continued the story of Atlantis. According to him, Aristotle stated that the Phoenicians, the sailing traders of all the countries of the ancient world, knew of a large island in the Atlantic that they traded with. This information would be documented on maps and the, uh, the continent was known as Antilia. Aristotle even wrote in one of his books about the Carthinian merchants who sailed across the Atlantic to what they described as a beautiful and fertile island. Could this island be the Atlantis that destroyed? What if it is that Atlantis sunk but was not completely beneath the waves, leaving a smaller version of itself that the Phoenicians used to travel back and forth to? So Aristotle provided that the sailing merchants that he had talked to still traveled to some island out in the ocean. Now, here's where it gets really good. Remember how I talked about that uh, Hellenicus got his information from the ancient Egyptians? Right. Well, if you reach even farther back, there was an ancient Egyptian city, and I'm going <laughs> to butcher the name. It's called Oxyrhynchus, and it was located about 160 kilometers south-southwest of Cairo. This city disappeared underneath the sands. It was pretty much wiped out until 1888 when it was rediscovered beneath the sands. And what they found there was a vast treasure trove of ancient documents numbering in the thousands within the city. Wow. They basically discovered a library of thrown away documents in this buried ancient Egyptian city. According to the documents, the city was conquered by Alexander the Great in 332 BC, the same time as Plato, and he reestablished it as an Athenian town, which may be why so many ancient Greeks were associated with it and why they knew of the history contained within. So we have a conquered Egyptian city with a huge library 
that existed at the same time as Hellenicus and Plato. Could it be that the documents that the ancient historians and the philosophers gained their knowledge about Atlantis is lying somewhere in that collection somewhere? They haven't found it yet? Well, the Oxford University has been working on translating them continuously for over the last hundred years. Oh, wow. But we're talking thousands, maybe almost a million documents of ancient Egyptian dead languages that has to be translated. And I'm pretty sure it's, since it's on papyrus, it's really delicate too. Right. And probably the ink work is very faded. So it's really time-consuming work. And they don't know, it's not like they had a Dewey Decimal System, so they don't know which, you know, it could, right. you could have two rolled-up scrolls on your desk and you pick the one on the left, which ends up talking about, you know, mortgage rates. Where in the one on the right, if you had picked that one, might have told the history of Atlantis. So it's kind of like, you're going to be luck by if they ever find it, the right document or the right scroll. And here's a bit of cool trivia for our listeners and for you, Goldie Ann, is that you can go to their website, which will be added to the show notes, and see the actual translations as they're being released. Wow, that's pretty cool. I did go to the website, and it's really technical stuff, but maybe for someone who... It's really good in history or really good in languages and have a better understanding of that. But, yeah, you can actually see the translations of these hundreds of scrolls that they've already translated and are working on more. I mean, it's going to be exciting. Someday, you never know, there could be a headline on a newspaper saying, Lost Scroll Describing Atlantis Finally Translated. You never know. It might be in there. Yeah. And this might be where the first stories of Atlantis came from. And these stories of Egypt was passed on to Ceylon, was passed on Hellenicus, and thereby passed on to Plato. Wow, yeah. Then Plato translated it down to us. So what do you think so far? That's very interesting. You're going, you're doing this really well. I'm trying to, I'm trying (laughs) to, I feel like this is a, could be a dry, excuse the pun since we're talking about Atlantis, could be a dry history lesson, and I'm trying to keep it very exciting and just focus on the details of it. Right. Because there is just so much possibility there. I mean, these ancient scholars pretty much have confirmed that Atlantis existed, but what happened to it and to its people? Right. If these ancient scholars have confirmed that Atlantis existed, then the people should be there. Now, what would you say, Goldian, if I told you that perhaps their fate is staring us in plain sight? It might be closer than you realize. I would like you to explain that. Well then, let's go to chapter 3, The Fate of the People of Atlantis. This is a great theory that I came across and I did a lot of reading on. It seems that Gaul, which was an ancient land that existed where France and Switzerland is today, so that part of Europe, right? and the ancient Druids of Gaul wrote about people who arrived at their lands fleeing disasters from far-off lands. The people of Atlantis were said to be great sailors, and they should have been able to evacuate their home before its final destruction. Unable to travel to the lands of northern Africa and Mediterranean Europe, for obvious reasons. If that war did exist, I don't think they would have been very welcome. Right. It is reasonable to assume that they would choose the lands farther north, possibly even to the British Isles and the Celts. 
Does that sound feasible to you? It does sound feasible. Okay. Well, because in Celtic myths, there is a warrior king known as Agma. He's referred to in Gaul as Agamos and in Wales as Gwyndion. And he was the chief of the Tuatha de Danann, who led his people to Ireland around the year 1200. According to Labor Gabala Eren, these people came to Ireland in dark clouds and landed on the mountains of the Kamasirian in Kanacha. And they brought a darkness over the sun for three days and three nights. They immediately burnt their ships so that they could not think of retreating to them. And the smoke and the mist that came from the vessels filled the neighboring land and air. Therefore, it was conceived that they arrived in clouds of mist, possibly the lost continent of Atlantis. Wow. So if you think of an island continent basically exploding or a volcano bursting and sinking the island, that does fit these people coming from Atlantis in ships and then burning them so that they could not try and go back to Atlantis. That's insane. Here's more details about the Tuatha de Danan. They were considered a supernatural race and considered deities of the pre-Christian Gaelic Ireland. They were idealized humans, perfect specimens in height and strength. They were immune from aging and sickness, and they had the powers of what they considered magic or unidentified Atlantean sciences. Upon their arrival to Ireland, Agma, the leader, led his people to take Ireland from the Fearbolg. The Fearbolg was a collection of people from the Greek colonists who had settled the land before the arrival of the Tuatha de Danann. Hence, there is no love lost between the two people. So do you have a group of people from Atlantis and a bunch of colonists from Greece all meeting face-to-face in Ireland? At which point, the Tuatha de Danann conquered them and took Ireland for their own? If this is accurate, then it means that the descendants of Ireland may have Atlantean blood. Here's where I'm going to really excite you, Goldian. Oh, God. A key support to this is the descriptions of the ancient Atlanteans and particularly the color of their hair. Descriptions say Atlanteans were supposed to possess red hair. Red hair? Hair in Ireland? Uh-oh. And that these red-haired people might have Atlantean bloods. Oh, we need to let Ariel know. Yes, because who do we know that has red hair? Our son-in-law. <laughs> exactly. So it is possible Ryan, our son-in-law, who does have red hair, might have Atlantean blood. And if he is part Atlantean, what does that mean for our grandchildren? Well, we already know they're little mermaids. <laughs> So my grandson and granddaughter may also be Atlanteans, which might explain why they love the ocean quite as much as they do. So I thought that this would be a pretty interesting tidbit to you that, yeah, Atlanteans might still be out there and uh, the DNA is found in people with red hair. That's awesome. So consider yourself lucky, Goldian. You actually talked to an Atlantean. <laughs> if we've met the people of Atlantis, what do we do next? Chapter 4, The Search for Atlantis. Now we have the support of ancient scholars declaring that the continent of Atlantis did exist, and we have theories of where the people ended up after the collapse of the continent, then there should be something remaining of such a vast island. 
how do you lose an entire island? The search for the lost continent of Atlantis never ends. In fact, every year there is a new headline of someone discovering the lost city of Atlantis. Although it hasn't been proven yet, there are some very good artifacts and discoveries that have been made. I said, like what? Well, in 2011, a U.S.-led research team believed they discovered the lost city of, of Atlantis in the mudflats of southern Spain. It is in the right area, and the region had been swamped by a tsunami thousands of years ago. So there was a city there, and it was destroyed when the giant waves basically crashed down on it and flooded the entire region. What this group did is they used satellite imagery and ground-penetrating radar. They discovered signs of a submerged city. Although the data and actual excavation has not been completed, they were confident enough in their research that they produced a documentary entitled Finding Atlantis. You can actually get this on the National Geographic channel. For me, one skeptical part of this story is that the city they located is not an island, but it does reach 60 miles inland. So it doesn't really fit with the lost continent of Atlantis. So maybe this was just part of an outreach of the continent and their kingdom. Yeah. One of the better pieces of Atlantean evidence was actually discovered by Titanic filmmaker James Cameron. Oh, really? Yes. Now, we all know that he has a huge passion for the sea with making the film Titanic, The Abyss, making numerous documentaries about actually going underwater um, if I'm not mistaken, he actually is one of the few people that actually travel in the Marianas Trench, the deepest part of the ocean. So this is a man who loves projects that connect to the ocean. And what he did is he followed the work of Plato's descriptions for the location of the lost continent. His team utilized archaeologists, scientists, and historians, and they traveled throughout the Mediterranean Sea to search for the true Atlantean civilization. Again, you can actually watch this on a National Geographic documentary titled Atlantis Rising. Did he find something? That's what's the fun part. He did. <laughs> One of the key supports found during his research was a pair of Bronze Age anchors, 4,000 years old. Oh, wow. So why didn't they just stay there and keep going? Well, they, they did keep going and they did find other artifacts. And it's going to take years to pretty much go through everything and try and prove that they are actually Atlanteans. Oh, so this is happening now. Oh, this is happening now. In fact, the location and technology for crafting these anchors that they found supports that there was an island there in the middle of the ocean where there was no island and that this island had a harbor that housed ships. An island that's no longer there, a fleet that disappeared, this all fits in with the legend of Atlantis. In fact, the technology to forge such anchors is pretty advanced and does fit into the Atlanteans' technologically advanced image that they've presented. Right. More evidence and artifacts could actually prove the Atlantean designs. This one's even better. There is a metal called orichalium which was a legendary metal Plato mentioned in the Critias dialogue that was connected to the Atlanteans. So the Atlanteans had their own metal that they 
forged into their weapons, armor, and everything. This metal and the ability to forge it was proof of the advanced skills of the island continent and was distinct in its red color and only found in Atlantis. So do you have, have you ever seen red metal? No. Okay, because there is gold, there is brass and iron, but never seen anything red. Well, after the destruction of the continent, no other civilization was ever able to manufacture the legendary metal. It was said to be extraordinarily strong and made the powerful weapons and armor that the Atlanteans were famous for. The skill to forge such a metal was only known on Atlantis and therefore thought lost with the continent. Plato wrote about this and wrote about this metal. In 2015, 22 kilos of ingots recovered from the seabed of Sicily are believed to be this legendary metal. Oh, wow. So as they were exploring the bottom of the ocean in shipwrecks, they may have come across this metal. I don't even know what to say. That's kind of, that, that's crazy. It's amazing that something that was described 2,500 years ago, we're now finding and matching up with what he wrote about. Right. And I mean, something we've been taught for so long that's just an imaginary fable that is actually, you know, could possibly be real. Here's more data for you. If you have the placement of Atlantis pretty much to the west of Europe, past uh, Portugal and the uh, Pillars of Hercules, it does put it on a parallel course with the Caribbean and, South, and Central America, which helps support the argument that the Atlanteans and their technologically advancements were the aid to helping build the, both the pyramids of the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Mayan uh, Native Americans. Well, that would explain a lot. Because exactly. nobody can figure out how they've been made. Right, because they were right in the middle between both of these by placement. So they would have had travel to both continents. That is why it took so long for North and South America to be discovered, is because this vast ocean was in the middle. What if there was a continent that was in between and that they were the ones that were able to pass on knowledge that makes the similarities between the South American uh, Aztecs and Mayans matching the sciences of the ancient Egyptians. Wow. I wish I wouldn't say wow so much, but this is just wow. <laughs> it is great that a child's bedtime story of Atlantis with mermaids and, like you said, the little mermaid and so forth might actually have scientific proof behind it. Many people have written about it oh, for 2,500 years. Right. And now we have uh, data that shows where they may have went, that they maybe they traveled to Northern Europe. And now as technology is getting better, we're actually finding artifacts. And maybe it's only a matter of time before we find an actual building at the bottom of a sea or ocean that fits the description of Atlantis itself. That would be a great, great discovery. What's even better about Atlantis is that it has such a great influence on popular culture. Oh, yeah. Pretty much it's a worldwide and has fascinated generations for books and movies. And in this part of the show, I usually like to refer to some of my favorites. I can't help but, yeah, I definitely do have a partiality to the little mermaid oh lord 
Did you know what color is Ariel's hair? Red. <laughs> Just like the Atlanteans. And there's also the movie uh, by Disney called Atlantis: The Lost Continent. Right. And it did have a. They both have sequels and so forth as well. So those are good entertainment parts of Atlantis. But there are so many other movies. I would love to hear some of your favorites about the Lost City of Atlantis. But even besides just the straight fictional ones, there's also so many documentaries that talk about all the theories of what Atlantis was. I didn't even touch on the part where Atlantis might be aliens. I mean, I'm sure you heard that theory before that actually the Atlanteans were an alien race. They had built their city on a continent and they were trying to study or maybe they were trying to help out the human civilizations. I didn't even go into those theories on this one. I felt there was enough here just earth-based. Well, I'm glad you did. I think that would have taken away a lot of the feeling of the show. <laughs> well, I mean, it's uh, you've definitely taught me a lot I didn't know. Uh I just thought it was a fable. You know, there was no possibility. I know people search for it, but that's all part of the fable. Searching for Atlantis. But about the red metal and the findings pretty pretty impressive i didn't know it went so far back past plato now atlantis is called a futuristic city in ancient times it was able to influence the egyptians the aztecs and even us today did such a place exist do they still exist beneath the sea or in the bloodlines of ginger-haired people of today and my grandchildren If we someday discover the actual remnants of this amazing island or a scroll that describes the island and provides real proof, I hope it continues to add the magic and the mystery to our everyday lives. Well, being sure to come up from the bottom of the sea, I suppose this is a good time to make our way back out of the mist and bring this episode to a close. Special thanks to David Facilian and Facilian Studios for the introduction music. As far as social media is concerned, I would like to ask you to search for Within the Mist podcast on your YouTube, where we have many of the short stories and copies of our podcast being added every day. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, we're actually also going to start touring different locations of hauntings and creatures features to add to that YouTube channel. So it's a good one to subscribe to and keep up to date on. We hope you enjoyed our stories about the lost city of Atlantis and we'll come again for another episode. Until then, look to the oceans and remain constantly curious. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. See you next time.